One of the more popular belief systems that has ever come from America is a system of doctrine known as dispensationalism. And the chances are that many of you probably in this church grew up dispensational. Maybe some of you even consider yourselves to be dispensationalists. Uh, I don't know for sure, everybody. The fact of the matter is that it was, for a time being, the dominant form of Christianity in America. Dispensationalism is simply a way of interpreting the Bible. It's a theological grid, so to speak, that brings all of the Bible together. As a matter of fact, the word dispensationalism, you, we word, use that word the same way we use the word reform theology, right? These are just different systems, different ways of interpreting the Bible, and there's more than just those two. Dispensationalism is primarily accredited to a man named John Nelson Darby, although obviously dispensationalists themselves would say that it's biblical, but its uh, most articulate form came from an American theologian named John Nelson Darby. He really championed it, and then there became many influential dispensationalists after him. So you might recognize names like C.I. Schofield, Dwight Pentecost, Charles Ryrie, Chuck Swindoll, Billy Graham, and one of the more popular dispensationalist theologians today is a pastor named John MacArthur. If you don't know what dispensationalism is, that's okay. It doesn't, that's not a big deal. It's totally fine. You don't need to feel out of place or anything. But typically, when people think of people who have some familiarity with it, when they think of dispensationalism, they almost always think of end times stuff. One of the things that dispensationalism is known for is it has a very exciting view of the end times. So dispensationalists are the ones who have sort of championed this rapture theology that the church is going to be raptured out of the world and then everyone else is going to go through this tribulation and that all of the signs that we're seeing in our day politically are all sort of pointing and prophesying that this is going to happen soon. And so typically when people think of dispensationalism, they think of an end times view. And as a matter of fact, there was a book series written called the Left Behind series, which is, I think, uh, I could be wrong about this. I forgot to look it up. But I believe it was the most popular book series ever sold in American history. Uh, but it's, if not number one, it's definitely up there. Uh, Left Behind was incredibly popular, and they've made many movies based off it. And Left Behind was this incredibly exciting sort of fictional look at the, what's going to happen at the rapture on the earth. So it was a dispensational-led fictional story. But I would argue that the end times view is not actually the key distinctive of dispensationalism because there are people who are not dispensationalists who share that end times view. So you don't have to be a dispensationalist to believe in a kind of rapture and then a tribulation and then that this is all happening soon. What I think is the most important mark that makes dispensationalism unique is what it believes about the relationship between the nation of Israel and the Christian church. Think about it this way. If you were to read through the Bible the first time and, and not have a whole lot of baggage bringing into it, uh, there was kind of this stark shift between the main characters, if you will, of the Old Testament and the New. Obviously, God and his Messiah are the main characters all the way through. But specifically, if you were to read through the Old Testament, the main characters are sort of God and Israel. Like the whole, the whole Old Testament is about Israel. It's about the nation of Israel, God's covenant people, his chosen people, the descendants of Abraham. But then you get to the New Testament, and it seems like the emphasis is not on national Israel, but the Christian church. 
This mixed group of Jew and Gentile believing in Jesus Christ, coming together to worship Jesus in the church. So who's like the main, other than God, who's the main character of the Bible? Is it Israel or is it the church? And what's the relationship between the Christian church and the covenant people of God, the chosen people of God, national Israel? What relationship do we as Gentile Christians in the Christian church have to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Christians understand this relationship differently. And dispensationalists have a unique way of understanding this relationship. And theirs, more than any other system, is an incredibly huge divide. The, Israel is an entirely separate entity from the Christian church. And they would still see Israel as the people of God. In dispensationalism, Israel is still the chosen people of God. That's who the Old Testament promises were made to, was national ethnic Israel. And that's who the Old Testament promises are still being awaited to be fulfilled in. We, according to dispensationalism, we are still in a dispensation. We are still living in a time where all of God's promises and his primary view of salvation is toward the nation of Israel. But because Israel has rejected the Messiah, God created the Christian church to help bring them to Christ. So in a very real sense, dispensationalism still sees national Israel as the privileged people, the chosen people, the primary object of God's eye in salvation. They see even the New Testament is still ultimately about bringing salvation to the chosen people of God, to national Israel. Now, I give that very extended introduction because I believe that this is the very kind of error, not exactly the same, but I think this is the very kind of error that Paul had to write the book of Ephesians to speak against. I think it was this kind of what I call a Jewish elitism that existed in Asia Minor that continued to treat the Jews, like first-class citizens, and the Gentiles as second-class citizens. The Jews were still the privileged people, the chosen people, the special people. And the Gentile Christians are almost viewed more of as an afterthought. I believe it was this kind of separation, this kind of distinction between the church and God's chosen Israel that Paul had to write the book of Ephesians. And I believe that's going to be made very evident, not just in our text today, but throughout all of the rest of chapter 2 and all of the rest of chapter 3. Paul's focus is going to be essentially teaching us over the next few weeks that there is no longer a distinction or two different kinds of chosen people, a chosen church and a chosen Israel, but that in Christ, everything has been equalized. We are all one in Jesus Christ. There are no more distinctions. Salvation has made us Israel. And so in a very real sense, what we're going to be looking at is God's chosen people is not national Israel. It's the Christian church. If you would open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to read just verses 11 through 13 today. Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 13. If you would please follow along with me, and I would invite you at this time to stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians 
Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This bars the reading of God's word. Would you please be seated? We've spent a lot of time already, 11 weeks to be exact, preaching through Ephesians chapter 1 and the first half of Ephesians chapter 2. And if you were to go back and summarize, you would see that Ephesians 1 and 2 are all about salvation. These deep topics of salvation. And I like to say it's salvation from a bird's eye view. It's just cosmic salvation. And that's why we talked about so many of these deep, heavy salvation truths. We preached on things like election and predestination, adoption, redemption, salvation by grace through faith alone, salvation apart from works. We talked about God's sovereignty over the history of salvation and many, many other very deeply heavy spiritual topics. But you can tell that here in verse 11, Paul has pivoted. He's gone from the big cosmic abstract and he's turned to his audience to get very, very personal and very, very specific. Now that he's sort of given us a systematic, academic, spiritual approach to salvation, he wants to now put that into practice. He wants to apply it. What does this big salvation that we just talked about for a chapter and a half, what does that mean for you guys? What is that, how does that change your life now that you know how you were saved? That's what Paul is doing. He is pivoting to apply their salvation. He first explained how God saved them. And now as he applies salvation to their current circumstances, he is going to continue a long process of showing them how the fact that Jews and Gentiles all have a common salvation, this means then that in application we are all equal. That there is no distinctions between us. Or as Paul says elsewhere, uh, Polly, I don't have this on the screen, but Paul says, or do I? I've, never mind, I do have this. If you'll click to this. This is what Paul says. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That last sentence is going to be very important in a moment. But this is essentially a brief snapshot of what all of Ephesians 2 and 3 is about. The application of salvation in our world today means that there is no distinction. We are all saved. We are all in the same boat. doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, male or female, black or white, Jew or Gentile. There is no distinction. We are, and this is key, Abraham's offspring. Interesting phrase we're going to come back to in a minute. So let's take a deep dive into these few verses to see how Paul begins to apply this great salvation that we've been talking about to these Gentiles in Ephesians. And remember, in case you're unfamiliar, the word Gentile just simply means anyone who isn't ethnically Jewish. Anyone whose, whose ancestry DNA tests don't go to uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob then you're a Gentile. So it's the vast majority of the world are Gentiles and then national ethnic Israel, they are the Jews, they are Israel. And so Paul speaking to Gentiles in a Gentile city 
is going to show them how they are equal to the Jews because of our common salvation. He begins in verse 11 by reminding them, telling them to remember their former way of life before Christ. He wants to, to bring them back to their old ways when they were covenantally and spiritually cut off from God. We have to make a distinction because the Jewish people in the Old Testament could be part of God's covenant but still be spiritually far from him. So there was both a covenant relationship to God and a spiritual relationship to God. And Paul wants to remind the Gentiles that before Christ, they were in dire straits because they didn't have either of those. They had no covenantal or spiritual relationship. And he begins with that covenantal one. Remember, verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. We'll stop there before he continues his point. Paul here reminds them that the Gentiles were once outside of God's covenant. And we know this because being a member of the covenant was symbolized by your physical circumcision. All of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of the male descendants were to be circumcised. And this was their version of baptism. This was how the people of Israel said, we belong to Yahweh, we belong to the Old Covenant. And they showed that through their sacrament, their sacramental sign, which was circumcision. And so circumcision became very, very important to the Jewish people because this was your identity. Your whole identity was, are you circumcised or are you not? Are you part of the people of God or are you a Gentile? And, and we see how important circumcision became in verse 11, that they just began to speak of the world in these categories. The circumcision versus the uncircumcision. They identified people by whether they were circumcised or not. And we tend to do this today with our own sacrament, right? It would not be uncommon for me, if I may be talking about my hopes, to see the whole world baptized one day. Well, what am I saying? that I just want a bunch of people to have an empty baptism that means nothing. No, baptism is symbolic of their entire plunging into the Christian faith. I want to see the whole world baptized. It means I want to see the whole world saved. I want to see the whole world come to faith in Jesus Christ. So we can distinguish the world into two categories, the baptized and the unbaptized. And that's what the Jews were doing. We're the circumcised, they're the uncircumcised. We are the circumcision, they are the uncircumcision. And so Paul reminds us, or reminds the Gentiles that you once were the uncircumcision. You were outside of God's covenant. But here's the important thing, because this is important for the rest of his argument. We can't read through this too quickly and miss out on the qualifications that Paul sort of subtly sneaks in as he talks about circumcision. Did you notice, doesn't he kind of seem to be downplaying circumcision? Doesn't he seem to be almost, I'm not going to go this far, but almost disparaging it? with these qualifications. What do I mean by that? He doesn't say in verse 11, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were the uncircumcision and we were the circumcision. No, he says you were called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcised. By the way, in the Greek, this, this modification is so obvious. That's why some English translations, mine does, the ESV, will actually put circumcised in quotation marks. Your Bible might do that. Because that's basically what Paul's getting at. He's, he's not actually saying you were the uncircumcised. It's so much he's saying you were the, the so-called the uncircumcised. Right? You put something in quotations, you're kind of downplaying it. Right? Like, oh, he's a really good friend. And I'm, not, I'm not actually calling him a good friend when I do that, right? You were the, uh, the uncircumcised, you remember? 
downplaying it. But if you, if you think, well, that's kind of a technical grammatical argument, I'm not sure about that. Well, then he makes it even more obvious because after he describes the uncircumcision and the circumcision, he reminds us, well, how does he view circumcision? That you Gentiles in the flesh, which implies that maybe there's a way you could be spiritually not a Gentile, right? So there's this implication that you're only fleshly Gentiles, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. And what is circumcision? Which is made in the flesh by hands. Why did Paul tell us that? Isn't that kind of obvious? I, I mean, I think all of the Jewish and the Ephesian people knew how circumcisions were performed. We didn't need to be reminded that this was an external thing that people had to do with their hands. So why did Paul remind us of that? He's going to make it obvious, more obvious here in a minute. But what Paul is trying to emphasize is that circumcision is not a spiritual reality. It's just a fleshly one. It's just an external one. It really has no spiritual repercussions. All it is, is just fleshly things made by fleshly hands. He's already setting, as he brings the Gentiles back to their former ways, which was very bad, he's still already setting up an argument he's about to make continuously that's very, very important, which is the fact that you're uncircumcised doesn't actually mean anything. That's what the Jews in Asia Minor are telling them. You're not the people of God. You're not the circumcised. And here Paul says, what, you don't have some mutilation of the flesh made by hands? What does that matter? You see the way he's subtly downplaying circumcision? Circumcision is the symbol of a spiritual reality. It is not the spiritual reality itself. Paul is implying that what circumcision symbolizes is something the Gentiles can have without circumcision. And he's going to draw on this more. But this is really, really important. And by the way, this is a huge theme throughout the New Testament for Paul. Because one of the primary issues in all of the New Testament was the Jews telling the Gentiles, you're not the people of God unless you become Jewish. You have to become part of the commonwealth of Israel. You have to become Israel to be saved. So you need to be circumcised. You need to keep the dietary laws and you need to follow the Old Testament law. And so it is a common theme for Paul to tell Gentile believers that circumcision has been fulfilled and it has passed away with the Old Covenant. Let me just give you some examples. You don't have to turn there. We have them on the screen for you. This is a lengthier one from Romans chapter 2. Paul says this, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? So you, Paul is already saying you can be, have, have a fleshly circumcision but not be truly circumcised. Or you could not have a fleshly circumcision, but you could be spiritually circumcised. You see how he's setting that up? We continue. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Do you see how Paul has made a, a, a separation between physical circumcision and spiritual circumcision? And that's why back in Ephesians 2, he said, what kind of circumcision am I talking about? The one that's made in the flesh with hands. The physical circumcision, which doesn't actually matter. 
He says this again in something similar in Philippians chapter 3, a little bit more polemical language. He tells the Philippians, who were also Gentile believers, to look out for the dogs, which, by the way, was a common insult that the Jews would refer to the Gentiles as. And notice what Paul's doing. He's taking a Gentile insult and he's using it on the Jewish people. Isn't that fascinating? Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. And who are they? Those, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What is that a reference to? Circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Look out for them. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So we go back to our categories in Ephesians chapter 2. And we have the circumcision and the uncircumcision. Who is it in the New Testament who belongs to the circumcision? Anyone who worships by the Spirit of God and glories in Christ Jesus. That's the definition of the circumcised. That's spiritual circumcision. So if you want to be the circumcised, you don't need to go see a rabbi. You don't need to go to your local hospital. Believe in Jesus Christ. Welcome to the circumcision. One more, Colossians chapter 2 verse 11 in Christ, in Him, also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You see, there's a fleshly circumcision and a spiritual circumcision. And all of the rest of the book of Ephesians, Paul is going to emphasize our need for spiritual circumcision. The fleshly one is no longer important. And so let's look at verse 12 then. So he's reminded them that they were once this covenantal people, but he's, he's done so in a way that's going to set up his argument. But then he moves on to their spiritual condition. They were not just covenantally removed from God in verse 11, but they were spiritually removed from him. Verse 12, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now that's a dire situation. That's a scary place to be. Paul describes them as being separated before they were saved, by, separated from five very, very important things. They're separated from Christ himself. They're separated from the promises of God, which are contained in covenant relationships. So they're separated from Christ. They are separated from the covenants the promises in the covenants. They're separated from the commonwealth of Israel. Commonwealth is basically just another name for a, an organized community. A city, a state, you could call it the commonwealth of Roswell or the commonwealth of New Mexico. They were separated from the people of God, from Israel. So they're separated from Christ. They were alienated from the commonwealth, alienated from the covenants of promise. And they had no hope in the world because what all this means is they didn't have God in the world. Right? So there's your five things that if you're not a believer, that you're separated from. You're separated from Christ. You're separated from covenantal promises. You're separated from Israel. And you're separated from God, which means that you don't have hope. <laughs> it is only in a right relationship with Christ that we have hope. That's what Pastor Jesse preached on last week. Now, just a real quick interesting side note. We don't have time for this, but I'm going to cram it in anyway. Uh, this is the only time in the Bible where the word atheist is ever used. It's interesting. Where do you think it is? It's right at the end of verse 12, having no hope and without God in the world. The Greek word underneath there is atheist. A without God. 
It's the only time atheist is used. And why do I find that so interesting? Because the Gentiles weren't atheists. They were the exact opposite of that. They were polytheists. They didn't just affirm the existence of God. They affirmed the existence of many gods. And yet Paul calls them atheists. Why would Paul do that? You see, because Paul is not using the word atheist the way we use it in our day and age today. We call people atheists who say there is no God. And that is a form of atheism. But Paul understands that even if you say there is a God, but you worship a false one, in reality, what are you worshiping? Nothing. Not God. There's no practical difference between being a professed atheist and a theistic unbeliever. They're both doing the same thing, worshiping something that isn't there. In other words, Paul, this isn't on the screen, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. So if you're not worshiping the true God, you're worshiping an idol. And an idol has no real existence, so you're worshiping nothing that has no existence. You're an atheist. Ironically, the way we use the term atheist, people who don't think God exists, Paul addresses that in Romans 1, and he says those people don't exist. Because God has made himself so abundantly clear in the things that have been made that he has clearly revealed himself so that no one has an excuse. Everyone is left without an excuse. They have taken the truth that God has given to them and they've suppressed it and exchanged it for a lie. So here's the irony of this word. As it comes to how we define atheists, no one you meet is actually an atheist. But if you define the word the way Paul means it, almost everyone you meet is an atheist. An atheist is simply someone who doesn't have God. And that's why this highly pagan, highly spiritual, highly religious, highly polytheistic people were no better than atheists. Because at the end of the day, they didn't have God. And if you don't have God, you don't have Christ. And if you don't have Christ, you don't have the promises of Christ. And if you don't have the promises of Christ, you're not part of the people of Christ. And if you don't have any of those things, what hope do you have? You have nothing. That's who the Gentiles were. They were estranged from God, covenantally and more important, spiritually. But this is where the good news comes in in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who once were far off have been brought near. You see how everything changes with Christ. Our conditions totally change when we receive the blood of Christ. The Gentiles who were once far away from these five things, because of Christ, are no longer far away from them. Christ has completely reversed their condition. He has taken what was far away and he has brought it near. His blood has drawn them to those things that they were once aliens from. And so that means all five things that the Gentiles were separated from, they now possess. And some of them, I, I don't mean to sound sacrilegious, but some of them, because of our sermon series, are, are a little obvious because we've talked about him so much. So yes, obviously, once you believe in Jesus Christ, you have Christ. We've covered that a lot in this sermon series. Obviously, once you believe in Jesus Christ, you have God. We've covered that a lot in this sermon series. And obviously, if you have God and you have Jesus, you have hope. So all of that makes sense. But, so I want us to focus on the two, what I would consider kind of bizarre outliers here. 
There are two other things that the blood of Christ has taken a room, I'm assuming, I don't know your, your biological backgrounds, but I'm assuming this room is mostly Gentiles. And the blood of Christ has not just drawn you near to himself, it's not just drawn you near to God, it's not just given you hope, it's drawn you near to two other things according to this text. Right? Would it make sense for Paul to give us five things that the Gentiles were once far away from? And then when he says the blood of Christ has drawn you near, he implies, well, not to all of those things. Some of them you're, you're still far away from. I mean, who's, who's, who's your granddaddy? Yeah, yeah, he's not, that's, not a, that's not a Jew. You, you, you are still far away from some of these things. But Christ has drawn you near to the other things. Is that a, a reasonable implication? No. Paul listed all the things that we were separated from, and then the blood of Christ has drawn us near to all of them. So what does that mean? Your faith in Jesus through his sacrifice, it doesn't just give you Christ. It doesn't just give you God. It doesn't just give you hope. What does it give you? It gives you the commonwealth of Israel. What does it also give you? The covenants of promise. Do you see, what has Paul just implied? You belong to Israel now. The covenants of the Old Testament which are where God's promises are. If you were to read the Old Testament hyper-literally, you would think you're excluded from them. Because who were the covenants made to? To Abraham and his descendants. To Moses and his descendants. Even Jeremiah 31, 31, the great prophecy of the new covenant. God declares, I will make a new covenant with whom in that verse? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. God's promises were made to Israel. The covenants were given to Israel. They weren't given to you. But notice what Paul has done here. What has the blood of Christ done? It's put you into those covenants. It's put you into Israel. The blood of Christ has made you Israel. Let's do some just really brief reminders of what this word Israel means. How did we get in the Old Testament this concept of Israel? Remember, the central covenant of the Old Testament is the Abrahamic covenant that God promised to bless Abraham and all of his descendants. But there was an issue. As Abraham started having descendants, some of those descendants were cut off from that promise. So God tells Abraham, you and all your children are part of this great blessing. But then Abraham has uh, uh, Isaac. But before he has Isaac, who does he have? Ishmael. Ishmael is a child of Abraham. And guess what God said? No, not him. Isaac is the chosen one. So apparently it's not enough just to be a descendant of Abraham. You also have to be a descendant of Isaac. And then Isaac had twins, Jacob and Esau. So both of them are descendants of Abraham. Abraham's their grandfather, for goodness sake. And then guess what God said about Esau? No, not him. Jacob I have loved. So it's not enough just to be a descendant of Abraham. You have to be a descendant of Isaac and Jacob. And that's, that, those three men are who we refer to as the patriarchs. God's covenant was made to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob's name was eventually changed to Israel. So the Old Testament understanding of Israel were the biological descendants of Jacob. And the commonwealth of Israel belonged to the biological descendants of Jacob. And the covenants were made not with Ishmael, not with Esau, but with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the Old Testament understanding was that the people of God are the biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the commonwealth of Israel. 
That's who the covenants of promises are. And here Paul comes along and tells these Gentiles, these are not men with names like Mordecai and Abraham and David. These are Theophilus and Titus. And he says, you guys are part of the commonwealth now. You guys are part of the covenants now. Isn't this amazing? So in other words, like how would I, 32 minutes, and how would I describe our thesis this morning? What is this sermon about? Here's what I want you to take home with you. Here's what I want you to drill into your mind and more importantly into your heart. You are part of Israel by the blood of Christ. You are part of Israel by the blood of Christ. God's, the blood of his son has drawn you near to the commonwealth of Israel. It has drawn you near to the covenants of promise. They're your covenants. It's your people. It is true that God's special people is Israel. And it's true that God's promises are only for Israel. But Paul teaches us that there is another way to become part of Israel. And it has nothing to do with your skin color. By faith, you are Israel. What I am actually teaching you is what the dispensationalists refer to as replacement theology. That's what I'm teaching. It's called replacement theology. But like this so happens in theology. These names get developed and the people who ascribe to them like the doctrines and they don't like the names. We talked about this at Sunday school today. Arminians don't want to be called Arminians. Calvinists don't want to be called Calvinists. Like, people don't like the names. Lutherans don't like being called Lutherans. We don't follow Luther. We follow the Bible, right? People don't like the names, but they get stuck. I don't like the word replacement theology because it misrepresents our view. People think that what replacement theology teaches is that the church replaced Israel. That God made special promises to Israel... But because they rejected Christ, God picked them up and said, never mind. And then he just, I'll just give them to the church instead. That's how people hear me. Because I'm saying there are biological Jews who are not part of Israel. There are biological Jews that are, do not belong to the covenant. And someone like me does. So people think that we have replaced them. The church has replaced Israel. But that's really an inappropriate way to describe what I'm teaching you today. I am not teaching that the church replaces Israel. Rather, I am teaching that Gentiles are grafted into Israel and we call that the church. Israel's not being replaced, it's being expanded. The church is true Israel. The church is spiritual Israel. That's what Paul's saying in Ephesians, but he makes it more clear in other places. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 6 through 9. To set the context up, in 1 through 5, Paul begins to lament. He is, he is desperately sad because so many of his fellow Israelites in the flesh, his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, have rejected Christ and are therefore without God and without hope in the world. They're not saved. And Paul laments this fact. But then Paul knows what his Jewish readers are going to say to him. They're going to say, wait a minute, Paul, you're saying like the vast majority of Israel are apostate and unsaved? Oh, that's funny because when I read my Old Testament, uh, God promises to save all of Israel. The Abrahamic blessing is a blessing to all of Jacob's descendants. 
And you're saying most of them are not being blessed? So who should I believe, Paul, you or God? Has the word of God failed, Paul? Did God fail in his promises to the descendants of Jacob? Has God failed to bless Israel the way he blessed Israel and out the old, all throughout the Old Covenant? And here's Paul's response. Has the word of God failed? Have the promises to Israel failed? And Paul says this in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. But it as not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Does having a biological ancestry to Jacob make you Israel? It's crystal clear, no. Paul's saying, God has not failed to keep his promises to Israel. You have failed to understand who Israel is. That's Paul's argument. The promises to Israel are 100% valid. They've been fulfilled and they're going to be fulfilled. But the problem is you think that Israel is a fleshly category. It's actually a spiritual one. It is not all of those who descended from Israel are Israel. Not everyone who's a biological descendant of Jacob can rightly be called Israel. Just because you go to Jacob doesn't mean you're Israel. So what is Paul showing us? True Israel, spiritual Israel are believers. Those who are counted as Israel through their faith in Christ. So you see how Paul is setting up this category that you in this room can be part of Israel. He, he, he makes this more, even more explicit. He develops this whole argument all throughout Romans 9, 10, and 11. And notice the analogy he gives in Romans 11. Turn to Romans 11. Look at verses 11 through 24. Here, what he's doing is he's, now he's trying to prove that, yeah, just merely being a descendant, a biological descendant of Jacob doesn't make you Israel. But now he wants to prove, but again, this is not replacement theology. Paul's saying, I'm not saying that all the Jews are cut, cut off. Jews are still being saved. Jews can still be saved. It's not like God replaced the Jews with the Gentiles. He hasn't cut off the Jews, and he's going to elaborate on that argument. So he begins in verse 11. So I ask, speaking of physical Israel, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will the full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you as Gentiles. I, uh, or forgive me. I speak as Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now here's where it gets important. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through, fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. 
For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So let me break this long portion down. Paul has given us an analogy here to explain what we call replacement theology. And he's proven that it's not replacement. He uses this analogy of, a, of an olive tree. And God planted this olive tree, and the olive tree is holy. So anything that's connected to it is holy. The branches that are connected to the vine, to the root, are holy. The olive tree, I think the best way to interpret this is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the Abrahamic covenant. And we have natural branches that naturally grow from that olive tree. And who are they? The Jews. The Jews are born into the covenant. They are just naturally grow from the Abrahamic covenant. And then here's Paul's analogy in the new covenant. The branches that rejected Christ, what happened to them? They were cut off. So a Jewish person who rejects Jesus is not Israel. They're not connected to Israel. And what has happened with these wild olive shoots? In other words, God has taken branches from a different olive tree and he's grafted them in. Who do you think that is? The Gentiles. So you see, the church is not replacing Israel. The church is Israel. And Israel is being pruned. The unbelievers are being disconnected from the promises and believers are being connected to the promises. And then Paul's overall point is this why we as Gentiles don't get to be haughty and proud. In the same way that the Jews don't get to pretend like they're more important than us, we don't get to pretend like we're more important than them. Because we're all just in the vine by faith. And God's not afraid to cut any one of us out. So you see how Paul has explained this concept of Israel. What does it mean in Ephesians chapter 2 that you have been brought near to the covenants of promise? What does it mean that you have been brought near to the commonwealth of Israel? It means that you who are not Israel of the flesh have been spiritually grafted into God's covenant people. So what does that make you? You're an Israelite. Congratulations. You might be uncircumcised in the flesh, but you are circumcised of heart. You might not be Jewish in the flesh, but you are a Jew inwardly. This is the distinction Paul has made in Ephesians 2. And this is how he is leveling the playing field for these Ephesians. The Jews want to come in and act like we're the special people, we're the chosen people. No, who are the chosen people? Believers in Christ. You want to be part of God's Israel? You want to be part of his promises, part of his covenant people? Believe in Jesus. Come to Christ and receive a circumcision not made with hands, but a putting off of the old man. Let me end with a, an important application because the way I've presented the text so far, there may be some of you in here thinking like, I am so sick of Colin bringing up all of these wider debates. He's always bringing up the Calvinists and Arminians and the dispensationalists and I'm just bored with all of those academic, I don't care, just, just give me what I want to believe. Just give me the Bible and I can appreciate that. So let me do that. This sermon can be wildly applicable to you and you don't have to care at all about dispensationalism versus Reformed theology versus covenant. You don't have to care about it. In what way is this an important message for you aside from all of the, the noise and chatter in, 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 in the debate world? Well, here's the most important way. Here's the best application for you. This Bible, this is your Bible. That's what this sermon's mean. This Bible, the Bible that is in your hands, those are your scriptures. Those are your people. You see, it's easy for some people, especially in the first century, for Gentiles to read the Bible as if we're outsiders looking in. 
Because I read through my Old Testament, it's not about me. I'm the bad guy in the Old Testament. I'm the Gentiles. The whole Old Testament is about Abraham's holy lineage. It's about Israel and Judah. And it's amazing stories of Moses covenanting with the people on Sinai and delivering them from Egypt and Joshua bringing them into the promised land and David establishing a kingdom. And those aren't my people. That's not my history. My people believe in Thor. I'm a descendant from some European, northern European pagan tribe. I read the Bible as an outsider looking in. This Bible's not about me, right? By faith, you have been brought near to the commonwealth of Israel. By faith, you have been brought near to the covenants of promise. The Abrahamic promise, that's your promise. That's yours. These Old Testament scriptures are not the Hebrew scriptures. They're your scriptures. Because you're Israel. You're the people. When you read promises in the Old Testament like Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that's not just about Joshua. That's about you. Why? Because of who your granddad is? Because of your skin color? No. Because of the circumcision made not with hands. Because of the engrafting into the olive tree that you have received by faith in Christ. The best way you can apply this story is to read this Bible as if it was written for you. Because it was. To embrace the promises of God as if they've been promised to you because they have been. By the blood of Christ, this Bible is your Bible. These promises are your promises. Israel is your commonwealth. Welcome to the people of God.